four-year stretch of my life that I spent more time driving than any other. And it was uh, the last two years I was in college, my junior and senior year, I was, uh, I was going to college up in Aaron, Indiana, and I was a part of a church plant uh, back in Putnam County, Indiana, which is about a two-and-a-half-hour drive. And so every weekend I would come home to be involved with that and then drive back up. And then after I graduated for two years, I had a vested interest in. And so I ended up traveling back there for two more years before we got married. And so there was a four-year stretch where it seemed like every weekend or every day I, was, I felt like I was on either Interstate 70 or Interstate 69. And early in that window, uh, leaving the church plant one Sunday night to try to get back to school, I got pulled over by Indiana State Police Patrolman. And thankfully for me, uh, this guy was a longtime family friend. Um, he, he asked for my license. I hadn't seen who it was yet. I handed it out, and then I heard him go, Oh, Mr. Parks, how you doing? Just slow it down for me. Have a good evening. So it's like the shortest traffic stop ever, right? And you think that, would have, that wouldn't have made a big lasting impression on me, but it absolutely did because it was the most terrifying experience of my entire life. Right? The, the way my heart sank when I saw the lights come on and the cop car pulled behind me, and I was like, I can't afford a ticket. I can't, this is going to be terrible, right? And what happened is, and then for the next four years, for most of the two to three hour drives I had, I was never bored for one second. Because around every corner... And behind every overpass and in every meeting, I was scanning and looking for policemen. I was obsessed with trying to find them before they found me. And I know what you're thinking. Why didn't you just drive the speed limit? Because I was 21 and I was an idiot, okay? So I chose the stressful way. And I, I remember one trip in particular where I fell into a flow of traffic behind a group of cars. I called these guys my horses, right? And if they were going at a particular speed, I'd just fall right in with them and follow them and hope they got in trouble. And so as they went, I went. And this continued on for several miles. And all of a sudden, every car in front of me just started braking. I saw all these brake lights. And everybody slowed down to about five to seven miles per hour below the speed limit. And I was a little confused. I was like, even below the speed, I wonder what's going on. And so I'm, I'm peering ahead, I'm looking around, and then I see it. In the right lane of Interstate 70 is a police car. And no one's having the guts to pass him, right? Even though he's going below the speed limit, nobody is going to take that risk. And so they're all driving, and the line's getting long behind us. And finally, the guy in the front car just takes off and passes him and goes on his day. And I'm thinking, man, that's a bold move, right? I was waiting for the lights to come. Nothing happened. So the next car inched up. They sat there for a few seconds, and then they passed. And on and on and on. Finally, five, six cars. And then it was just me and the police car. And I was like, why is everybody willing to pass this guy? And so I inch up a little closer, still going on the speed limit, and I look and see on the side of his door, West Terre Haute Police Department. And I was in Plainfield, Indiana. And that's when a key word popped in my head, jurisdiction. Because right? police jurisdiction refers to the area in which an officer is allowed to enforce the law. For instance, an Indianapolis officer has no authority in Terre Haute. And so every car had inched up that police car, saw that he was outside his jurisdiction, and all of a sudden they were fearless and they were brave and they just went about their day. And I tell you that story because we're going to look at, and we continue on our study in the book of Mark today, and we're going to look at a story in which we'll see a man do something that we've all been guilty of. It's, a, it's an act, it's a posture that we would never say we believe out loud, yet in practice we live it out all the time. And I'm referring to the practice of living as if Jesus has jurisdiction. That there are areas in which we love and surrender to and submit to his authority and his good reign and rule. And then there's those areas of our hearts and our lives and our mindset and our attitudes and our calendar that we act like we're just outside his jurisdiction. His authority doesn't get to speak into those. He doesn't get to enforce his standards there. 
And what I'm praying and hoping that we'll see from this story today is not just that that's inconsistent and not just that that's insincere and not just that it's wrong, but also that we'd see just how damaging that is. And whenever we go through this life and pick and choose where Jesus has jurisdiction, we're always doing so from a selfish standpoint. And whenever self is the focus, others always get hurt every time without fail. And so I'm going to invite Seth Wyram up. He's going to read for us Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 39 through 45. And so please follow along with him in the Bibles. And if you're physically capable, please stand with him to honor the reading of God's word today. Morning, everybody. Um, yeah, like Brett said, um, page 888 on the, in the Black Bibles. Um, he went into all of Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, But go and show yourself to the priest, and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news, with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places, and they came to him from everywhere. You guys can have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open there to Mark 1. We're going we're gonna to dive into this story in some pretty good detail today. And anything else we'll put on the screens, but we want you to be able to follow along in Mark 1. And this, <laughs> excuse me, this is the last uh, story, sort of narrative in chapter 1. Uh, but it continues the themes that we've seen all throughout chapter 1. The, 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 the themes that Mark is establishing as he opens his gospel. Right, Jesus is on the move. He's establishing his own authority. He's establishing his identity. He's establishing his power wherever he goes. And when one, of the, one of the things that Mark has been pounding uh, into our heads is just the exclusivity of Jesus. And in verse 39, we find him doing what he's been doing. Right, he, goes into, he goes into Galilee, and he's, he's preaching in the synagogues, and he's driving out demons. Right? He's, he's proclaiming one kingdom, his own, and he's establishing his dominance over the other kingdom, which is the kingdom of darkness. And all chapter long, Mark has been making the case that that Jesus has authority. But here, as as we close the chapter this morning, through the question of a leper, Mark wants to let us know something else, and it's this. That Jesus' authority is for our good. See, we're we're still early in the portions of this book, and we've already seen Jesus' power. We've seen how he withstood the temptation in the desert and did did not give in to sin like like the humans failed in the Garden of Eden. We saw him demand his disciples leave everything and follow him, and they did. We've seen him heal lots of people and cast out demons with just a word. But Mark wants us to know that this authority isn't just there, it's also for us. That Jesus' great and unmatched power is not to be resisted because it's wielded by a God who's good in every way. And we can see this put on display in this encounter with a leper. Because in verse 40 of chapter 1, there's a man with leprosy who approaches Jesus. And and when he does, he falls on his knees before him and he starts begging for mercy. Now, what you need to know is that that act alone was already a risk by this leper. There's a lot in this Bible about leprosy. 
And the reason why is obvious. Not only was it a common condition in the, in the times that the Bible was being written, but, but leprosy is a physical condition that, is, that serves as a perfect analogy for the spiritual condition of sin. And in the, in the Old Testament law, in Leviticus 13, God gave the Israelites a, a series of tests to perform and ways to respond whenever people developed these skin ailments in their camp. And, and one of the biggest sections is on leprosy. And reading that, you start to see these similarities between sin and leprosy, right? Leprosy was a condition that appeared on the skin, but in reality went much deeper than skin level. It spread and was contagious, and so it could, it could move through the camp of Israelites really quickly. According to law, somebody with leprosy would be declared unclean socially. They'd be declared unclean spiritually and religiously. They'd be declared unclean ceremonially. And so what this resulted in is they would be treated as outcasts. Or they would be put outside the camp. They'd be outside the city, outside the town. And so there actually existed a literal gap between them and the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle of the temple. Legally, once they were outside there, they had to warn people who were coming by. They had to call out unclean, unclean, so that people knew not to approach them and get close to them. They were never allowed in the temple to worship, and they weren't allowed any physical touch or human contact. I could go on. But what you need to know is this, that leprosy was awful. And it was awful far beyond whatever physical suffering exists. It made you a pariah in every way. And what's even worse than that is it was widely believed, right? The most common belief is that if you got leprosy, it was because God was cursing your life for something wrong that you've done. And so it's not like a bunch of sympathy and compassion came your way either. And so just like sin, the Jewish rabbis believed that leprosy was incurable. And so we don't know, in verse 40, how long this guy's been in this condition. Maybe it's been a couple weeks, maybe it's been a couple decades. We don't know. But however long it's been, his future is even bleaker than his past. Because he has no hope of this ever changing. His option, like all other options, of, the options of all who had leprosy in that day was just to live out his days in suffering and isolation as an outcast, and then one day he would die. But then he starts hearing stories. Starts hearing stories of what Jesus is doing in his region, in his area, and, and he believes, he comes to believe that Jesus Christ has the power to heal him. You'll notice as we go through the story, there's not one time he doubts that. And so he takes a risk. When Jesus is near, he doesn't cry out unclean. He doesn't tell people to keep their distance. He actually instead approaches Jesus. He breaks every rule. And he falls on his knees before him and begs him, if you're willing, then make me clean. Note in that response, right, he didn't question Jesus' power. What he was unsure of is this, was Jesus' heart and willingness. Because he'd heard all the stories, but he'd never met the man. And what happened next far exceeded even this guy's expectations. Look at verse 41. The Bible tells us that moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. Moved with compassion, because that's who Jesus Christ really is. Jesus reaches out and touches the man, and he doesn't do so to heal the man. And please note, he has not healed him yet. And so by reaching out and touching somebody with leprosy, Jesus is shattering all the expected norms of a rabbi or prophet in his day. He's, he's breaking the rules. He's declaring that he has authority even over the law of Moses. He, he's breaking the stigma of uncleanness by showing he's above it. And then he confirms and validates this man's worth even as a leper. Because with Jesus, his love always precedes the healing. His love always comes before the healing. You know, Jesus doesn't just love 
the only the cleaned up, buttoned down, fully forgiven, life turned around version of us. He loves us at our worst. He loves us when we can't conquer that sin. He loves us when we're in the throes of addiction. He loves us when we're rebellious to him. He loves us at our worst. When everyone else would reject us, he doesn't. I'm willing, he tells the man, teaching him about his heart. And then to make sure that we understand that all this love and compassion don't erase a single ounce of his power and authority, he simply just tells the man to be clean. And verse 42 tells us that immediately the leprosy is gone. This man is healed in a moment, in an instant, just by the word of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing story, right? But it becomes even more amazing when we realize that it replicates all of our stories. Because as hopeless as a, helper was, as a leper was in the first century, that pales in comparison to what we face due to our sinful natures. We are all sinners, and it's a condition that has no cure, right? Our sin spreads, and the ramifications of it are unchecked. Our minds are depraved. Our hearts are deceitful. And in the eyes of a holy God, we are unclean. We are rebellious, and we are guilty, and there's nothing in our own power that we can do about it. But his love precedes the healing, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, And Jesus Christ came on a mission of redemption. He came to embrace us when we don't deserve it. He loves us in our mess. He loves us in our unworthiness. And he gave up his life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that if we repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, in an instant we're made clean. We are forgiven in full. We are cleansed of all unrighteousness. We are made right with God and we're granted eternal life. And part of the reason why we should love this story is because it should remind us of how Jesus has reached into our unclean hearts and brought healing for those of us who are in him. And it should also show any who have not yet believed in him, both their desperate state apart from Jesus Christ and also his unabashed willingness to save and forgive you. If you call out to him, his answer would be, I am willing to be clean. But the story isn't over, is it? And it's not over because Jesus' authority doesn't run out. See, Jesus' authority doesn't end with the miracle. Look, look what happens next in verse 43. And please take note of the language. Verse 43 says, Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest, priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. He sternly warned him. Read, that's not a gentle suggestion. He sent him away from once, at once. That means these are clear, even urgent instructions. There, there's, some, there's some urgency behind them. And he tells the man exactly what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And the first instruction is this, be quiet. Don't, don't tell others about this. And then when you do, once you got that, number two is go show yourself to the priest, the only one who under the law who can declare you clean. And then third, offer the sacrifice that was prescribed in the law for your cleansing. Now these instructions and the urgency in which they were delivered, they can cause confusion or at least some curiosity. Because for instance, especially the first one, which is just be quiet and tell no one about this. That's the exact opposite of the command we have in the Great Commission, isn't it? To go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, telling them, teaching them everything that Jesus has, has told us to observe. Now, there, there are reasons for this, and one of which we'll see in this passage. And we could spend some time breaking down a few theories of exactly what Jesus was up to with this guy. 
Right? He, he's showcasing his power of the law. He's doing this awesome balance of fulfilling the law, not abolishing it, right? even while showing his power over it. He, he's attempting to teach the religious leaders a lesson. But I'm not going to spend time this morning on, on trying to figure out everything Jesus was doing for a couple of reasons. Number one, ultimately I'd just be guessing. Right? I don't know exactly what he's up to. And number two, it's not the main point I want to focus on today, which is this. It doesn't matter why Jesus did this. Whatever his reasons are, they're good. And he's just displayed his authority. He's just displayed his power. He's just showed this man tremendous compassion and grace and mercy. He's changed his entire life and healed him. And so whatever Jesus tells him to do, he should do it, right? Even if he didn't want to. Even if it's out of the order of how he'd do it. Even if it didn't make sense. Even if he would do something differently. Even if he didn't like it. Has Jesus not just earned that loyalty? Did he not just show that he's worthy of that obedience to this man? But what's the guy do? Look at verse 45. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news. He does the exact opposite. I'll tell you what he did. He acted as if Jesus had jurisdiction. He granted Jesus authority to the point that it benefited him and no further. Yes, Jesus is king. Yes, he's in control. Yes, he has authority when he's healing me. He's doing something awesome for me that I would want him to do that nobody else could do. But the moment he tells me to do something I don't want to do, eh, he doesn't have jurisdiction there. I'm not going to grant him that level of authority. And before we start shaking our head too much at this guy, we all do this, don't we? Now, that doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it any less repulsive or wrong. But we all do it. We often accept the power of Jesus to save us, the power of Jesus to forgive us, the power of Jesus to bless us and provide for us and make our lives better. We give him, we accept his power to do for us everything that we would want him to do. But when he asks for something we don't like, well, that's when we like control. And the problem is that his authority doesn't end with the miracle. His authority doesn't end with our healing. His authority doesn't end with the blessings. His authority doesn't end with our salvation or his graciousness. His authority never runs out. His jurisdiction never ends. We don't have the right to determine where he rules, and we don't get to do that because there's nowhere he doesn't rule. And when we make that decision, that there are areas in our lives that, that, that he doesn't get to speak into, the ramifications never stop with us. We like to think they do, but they don't. It's because our disobedience always hurts other people. Let I me mean, think about it. Because this guy only thought about himself. Look, look at what happened. Verse 45 again. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news. And here's the result. With the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. Now that might seem like a small detail to you, but it's not. This is part of why Jesus would tell people to stay quiet, especially early in his ministry, because if news spread too far, too wide, too fast, that was going to present him a lot of challenges. Number one, it's going to capture some unwanted attention by Rome and by the Jewish leaders, and there was a, there was a time set for Jesus to die on the cross, and he wasn't looking to fast forward it. Number two is make travel difficult. He, he literally can't enter in towns anymore. And number three, this is the one I think mattered the most to him is that people would not be coming to him for the right reasons. Last week, Adam did a tremendous sermon on verses 29 through 38, uh, but I want you to look back again at verse 32, what Mark 
tells us in verse 32, he says, When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So that's Mark telling us that there in Capernaum, the entire town came to the house where Jesus was, and they brought all their sick and all their hurting and all the demons this, and he, he did one miraculous healing after another, after another, after another. And in verse 35, early in the morning, when no one else notices, Jesus sneaks out to a deserted place. And Simon Peter comes looking for him and says, Master, everybody's looking for you. Of course they are. They want to see the show again, don't they? They want to see more miracles. They want to see more healings. Well, look what Jesus says in verse 38. He says, let's go on to the neighboring villages. Let's go elsewhere, basically, so that I may preach there too. This is why I've come. Did you know what he didn't say? He didn't say, let's go on the neighboring villages so I can do more miracles there. Let's go on the neighboring villages because there are more people to heal there. No, he says, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I can preach there too because this is why I've come. See, it was never about the signs. It was never about the healings, right? Those were to validify his identity and his authority because as loving and as gracious and as great as physical healings are, they all come with a limitation. They're all temporary. Here at the end of chapter one, he changed this leper's life for a few more years. And then the guy's gonna die anyways. But Jesus is preaching and his gospel and what he was gonna accomplish on the cross, those things change people's eternities. And if Jesus is known as a healer only, then he's a sideshow to be watched. He's some powerful medicine man to go to make your earthly life more comfortable and better for for a season. He had much higher aims than that. In addition, it's not hard just to see the logistical issues. It's now harder for people to come to Jesus. He can't go into towns anymore. He has to stay out in the desolate places. People have to come to him. So think about the elderly. Think about those who are sick. Think about the disabled. Think about the weary. Think about the little. For all of them, it just became harder to meet him, harder to see him, harder to hear him, harder to be healed. This one man's disobedience made Jesus' life harder. This one man's disobedience made his disciples' lives harder. This one man's disobedience made it harder for everybody else to come to Jesus. He became a hurdle that people had to climb over to get to Jesus. All because in his excitement, he didn't think about anybody but himself. It's a story that starts really well and ends so sour. And yet God included in his word, and so what what can we learn from it? What are some takeaways that we can apply to our lives? And the first, I think, is the most obvious, and it's this. Just come to Jesus Christ for healing. Man, a life as a leper in the first century was horrible. They were desperate, they were alone, they were outcast. Worship was incurable, and then Jesus came along and everything changed. But in his commentary on this passage, Warren Rigsby writes, anyone who has never trusted the Savior is spiritually in worse shape than this man ever was in physically. You see, you might have some tremendous physical need today, and, and if you do, listen, there's no, in no way do I want to downplay that. If you do, you know how real that is, how terrible it is, how awful it is, and you would love relief. You would love healing from that, and you need to know that Jesus is capable of doing that. He can change your circumstance in a moment, but we have no guarantee that he will. Just as I don't know why he cleansed this leper and not others, part of his sovereignty remains a mystery. A physical healing is never guaranteed in the Bible. 
not in this life. But no matter how great a physical need anyone has, it pales in comparison to our spiritual need. We've all sinned, and in doing so, we've rebelled against a holy, awesome God, and that has put us in an incurable state, that we are his enemies, we are under his wrath, we are bound for hell, and there's nothing that we can do in ourselves to change that or fix it. But thanks to Jesus Christ, thanks to his death on the cross and resurrection, if we come like this leper, we come begging for healing, for forgiveness and grace and for cleansing of our sins, if we come to Jesus in faith, his response will be, I am willing to be clean. He will save you. His death on the cross will forgive your sins. His resurrection will grant you eternal life. But you need to know this is only found in him. So come to Jesus for healing. The second ramification I think we can't miss here is that his authority is not a buffet. Now, I thought about this week. I don't think I've ever had a bad experience at a buffet, which is why Terre Haute is a darker place than it used to be. There's a time before COVID in which you could go to Taj Mahal at lunch, and for an affordable rate, you could enjoy a lunch buffet of all-you-can-eat Indian food. I love taking skeptics there. You're like, I don't like Indian food. It's like, just go try it, right? Because at a buffet, there's no risk. You can try multiple different things, and whatever you like, eat more of, and what you don't, you don't have to touch, right? And, and that buffet, as we stand today, no longer exists. And so if you felt like a grayness sitting over our city, you're right. It's there. And if you wondered why, well, now you know, okay? And I go on that stupid rabbit trail because of this. Right? Too often we go through this life and we, we, we treat the authority of Jesus Christ like it's a buffet. We're, we're moving down the line and we want to pick and choose where he leads and where he reigns, right? We want, if we take our place, we want heaping scoops of eternal life, heaping scoops of forgiveness and grace and salvation. And then we try to be wise adults and say, yeah, I should probably eat some vegetables, some things that are healthy for us. And so I'll take these small scoops. I'll get baptized. I'll do a quiet time. I'll serve in a way that's comfortable or easy for me. It doesn't stretch me too much. I'll have a level of dedication as long as it meets my preferences and all my demands. And I'll put a little bit of that on my plate. And then we move a little bit farther down the line and we get to other dishes, our wallet and our attitude and our relationships, and our purity, and our thought life, and what we look at in the internet, service that will cost us, the language that comes out of our mouth, a level of dedication that isn't easy at all, a level of dedication that doesn't meet my preferences, or it's worried about my comfort, things that just aren't catered to me, a burden for the loss, a passion for his kingdom and not mine, and instead of scooping those on the plates of our lives, we're like, no, nah, I'm going to take a pass, and I'm just going to move on down the line. Because we want to be the leper in the story. We want to embrace his authority just as long as his will matches ours. We want to embrace his authority just so long as what he demands matches what I demand. And when it doesn't, I'm going to step back into charge. And every time we do this, it's just as painful and just as harmful and just as wrong as when this guy did it. And there's a detail that you might have missed, but I want to make sure you don't. Please take note of this. Most of the people that this man's disobedience harmed, he never knew. He would never meet them. He would never be aware of them. He wouldn't even be aware of how his disobedience made it harder on them. But it didn't make it any less damaging, did it? Because that's the thing about our sin, that's the thing about our disobedience that we don't like to think about and don't like to talk about, but it's absolutely true, is that we have zero control Zero control over how far the ramifications of our disobedience goes. 
And so what we need to strive to do for our sake, for the sake of those we love, for the sake of those we haven't met, and even for the sake of those we will never, ever meet, is to grant Jesus rightful authority over our entire lives. To stop treating him like a buffet. To give him control. To live a life worthy of the Lord. To seek to please him in everything that we do. To not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. To consider others more important than ourselves. To take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And in everything we do, we do it all for the glory of God. Everything I just said is a direct command from scriptures. And we decide every day whether we want that to have authority over us or we don't. His authority is not a buffet. We have to stop treating it like it. And in doing so, the last thing that we can see from the story is that we should not make it hard for people to come to God. It's one of my favorite stories about the early church, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, in which they're trying to decide what to do with these Gentiles who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And their big overarching thing is they didn't want to put a burden on them that their own ancestors hadn't been able to keep. And they didn't want, the quote was, they didn't want to make it hard for people to come to God. One man's disobedience made it hard for so many others to come to Jesus. Now, he had no idea it would, but it doesn't matter. It did. And we fall into the same trap when we have a mindset that isn't biblical. I've talked about this a lot recently. I'm going to be talking about it forever until I start living it out. There's a mindset that we are called to in God's word, a mindset that is radically countercultural. It's different from every other message you're ever going to hear. It's a mindset that is rarely seen and rarely followed and even more rarely lived out, but it doesn't matter because God demands it of us. And when it's lived out, there's nothing more beautiful. And it's the mindset we're commanded of in Philippians chapter 2, in which we're told, do nothing, listen to the language, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. In humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look, everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. You see, there's a question that we all ask. We ask it daily. We ask it in every room we enter. We ask it in every experience we have. We ask it in every conversation we're in. We ask it. It's, a, it's an inner dialogue, and it's in our nature to ask it. It takes no effort to ask this question. In fact, the effort is required to, to stop asking it, and we need that effort because it goes against everything Jesus calls us to. And yes, his authority extends here too. And the question is this, but what about me? What about, what about me? What about what I want? What about what, about what would be best for me here? What, what about me? And it seems innocent enough, doesn't it? But that question brings more division and more heartache and more broken relationships than any other question in our world. That question erodes families, kills marriages, tears apart friendships, and ends ends churches. That question leaves in its wake a trail of destruction and burned bridges, and that question makes the mission that Jesus gave his church impossible. Because when Jesus told his disciples in John 4, look up. Look up and open your eyes. See that the fields are ready for the harvest. He's responding to their navel-gazing. 
That entire chapter, he, they've been wondering why they're in Samaria. They're wondering why he's talking to a woman, why he's doing any of these things. They were going to get in the way of all that. And he's telling them, take your eyes off yourself, take your eyes off your upbringing, take your eyes off your traditions and your own desires, your own comfort, and look and see what God is up to and stop getting in the way of people coming to me. And I'm going to level with you all. We're going through a transition period of, of change as a church. We've had to make some complex, difficult decisions. One of them, we're, we're living now today with this dress rehearsal. And those decisions will change the experience for every single person that calls FBN home in some way. And what you need to know is that every single decision has been made for one reason, to make room for people to come to God. It's been amazing this morning in both contemporary services to see empty chairs. It's not something I'm used to seeing. Because when I see the empty chairs, is what I think of are neighbors and coworkers and friends who could be in those chairs. I think of, of men who are desperate at the end of their rope, moms, single moms struggling, not knowing where to go, people who are living without the hope of eternity and the hope of Jesus Christ could be in those chairs. And yes, the cost of those empty chairs will be felt across the board. And we want to be gracious and we want to be patient and we want to be understanding through this. It's okay for these changes to hurt a little. It's okay for cost to feel costly. It's really okay if you need time. But as we work through this, there's a balance that we have to get right as a church. And I'm just going to say we haven't to this point. And the balance is this. We need to be way more excited and way more hopeful and way more joyous about the possibility that more and more hurt, lost, and dying souls will be able to hear of the hope of Jesus Christ than we are upset and resistant and, and, and unhappy about our personal experience. I've heard a lot of feedback in the past three weeks. I haven't heard hardly anybody tell me how excited they are for the potential more lives being reached. We've got to get our focus back on the mission. We have Jesus, and those who have Jesus have what everybody else needs. He told us our mission. He told us what to live for. And so until he comes back, we need to be doing what we can to reach people with the hope of the gospel, everything that we can as a church and everything that we can as individuals and families. And it shouldn't surprise us that in time, from time to time in that, God will ask us for a cost in that mission to give up something, to, to make a change, to give up a comfort, to give up a preference in order to open up more possibilities. And I believe that he expects us to embrace those costs, not begrudgingly, but joyously and excitedly. Because it's what he's told us to do. And so it needs to be our combined prayer that God is using this season of change as a church, as a church, to raise up a congregation of people committed to never being a hurdle for people to climb over in order to get to Jesus. A congregation of people willing to absorb any cost it will take to see his name and his kingdom spread and his fame grow because the all-powerful, all-gracious, all-knowing, all-compassionate Jesus is worth whatever he asks of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the unsurpassed worth of Jesus Christ, for the unsurpassed glory of our King, the one who holds all creation together and yet took on the humble form of a man, 
The one who spoke everything in existence, yet felt all of our weakness and all of our pain and all of our temptation. The one who, though holy and sinless and spotless, took the whips and took the nails and took the suffering and took the cross for us. So God, if there's anybody within the sound of my voice who walked in today bound for hell, God, that they were separated from you by their sin, they've never believed in Jesus Christ. But I pray that today would be their day of salvation. Draw them to yourself right now. May they surrender and they believe in you in this moment. Because in this moment, you will heal them, you will forgive them, you will save them. But Lord, for those of us who've experienced that miraculous grace, would we stop treating your authority like a buffet? Would we understand that in light of that, you deserve everything. You're worthy of everything you'd ever ask. Would we grant you the rightful control over every aspect of our lives and our hearts and our minds and our attitudes and intention? Would you show us ways this morning, God, before we leave this building, ways that we are acting like you have jurisdiction in some areas and, and not in others? And would you lead us as a church to be a group of people that commit to never, ever, ever getting in the way of someone coming to you? We ask that you would do this, not even for our sake, God, but for the sake of your gospel, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of those that we have yet to reach and meet. And we ask you to do this for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Before we dismiss you today, we're going to give you a couple minutes to just respond to some things the Lord might have been saying to you this morning through his word. And this is your time to, to pray with him, uh, to, to wrestle with some things with him, to, to just to ask him to lead you as to how you should, you should respond to what you've heard this morning. Uh, please do not miss this opportunity. Take advantage of it. And uh, this is your time with him. So before we let you go, I want to make sure that you know that we want to be a resource for you. 
right? If you've made the decision to follow Jesus Christ for the first time today, please find us. Let us know, right? Uh, before you leave this place, we want to celebrate with you. We have some resources for you. And if, if the Lord has put some, uh, revealed some areas in your life that you, that you need to repent of or need some, some guidance on, uh, you, we, we want to be here for you to help you take steps closer to him. And so uh, don't hesitate to find one of us, talk to us where you go, set up a meeting uh, so that we can dig in a little deeper or even join a group so you can uh, continue the spiritual growth that you have. On your way out, the only thing I want to point out to you is uh, the sign-up in the back for different areas to serve. And then in the Welcome Center, uh, we have uh, some Operation Christmas Child boxes uh, for you to take and, and fill anytime in the next two weeks. They need to be back by November 13th. But those boxes will go uh, to children around the world who otherwise would not have a Christmas, and they'll get what comes with them is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, not only are you providing a child with a Christmas, they also get to hear the most important news they've ever received. And so... One, one last bit of information on that is uh, take as many boxes as you can fill well, right? And so we, we prefer two really good full boxes than five three-quarters or half full um, because there's a lot of people who are filling boxes all around the world, and each one of those boxes will be opened by a kid, and we want them to feel valued and loved when they open it. And so uh, you can take as many as you want, but take as many as you can fill well. Uh, and, and this is a great opportunity for you to do this together as a family, get your kids involved. Um, and so those are there for you. But thank you so much uh, for being here today. Uh, if you're a guest, please stop by our welcome desk. We have a gift for you for coming. Um, th- I want to thank the worship team for, for knocking out two services for us this morning and all the volunteers in the back. Um, and so we appreciate all of you for trying out this dress rehearsal. And we'll see you back at a normal time next week. And then on November 27th, this will be our schedule. And so uh, we love you guys. Go with Jesus Christ. You are dismissed.